Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis, a conversation exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. Each episode, we will take you to the heart of the city. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lindenwood Christian Church and Lux Creative. Well, it's hard to believe, but here we are in week five, and we want to thank everyone who has downloaded the podcast, The Heart of Memphis. We have growing numbers each week, and as we continue to put out good content, hopefully you will share that and let your friends know about this um, exciting conversation where we have a variety of perspectives brought on to our weekly conversation in, in the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. We're excited today to have John Horniak, longtime Memphian and music legend, if I can go ahead and say that, right here with us at Lindenwood Christian Church as we record today. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to doing this today. Well, we are glad to have you. You know, I have uh, said you're a longtime Memphian, but as you've reminded me many times, you were born and raised in the boot hill of Missouri. Yeah, actually, I... uh, First in northeast Arkansas, and then uh, I was raised by a single mom as a teacher. We moved to uh, the Boot Hill, Missouri. First to Bragg City, population 350, and then uh, in the eighth grade, we moved to Carruthersville, the biggest place we'd ever lived, population about 6,000, but 100 miles from Memphis. And, um, you know, as I like to say, I got to Memphis as, as quickly as I could. But Memphis was the the closest city you know, we got Memphis radio stations and Memphis newspapers. We would come here for concerts or or to for movies. And my high school basketball coach, at, as a reward at the end of the season, would bring us to Memphis to see a then Memphis State University basketball game at Mid South Coliseum. So, all of that led to when it was time to choose a college, I wanted to come to Memphis. Well, I've got a pointed question: Is it Missouri or Missouri? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I've, I've heard. I've been I, gone so long. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, uh, I, I just I, I grew up in southeast Iowa, right across the border from from Missouri, and there was a local fight. Do you call it Missouri or Missouri? And I'd always heard in the Boot Hill it was Missouri, and up north it was Missouri. That sounds right to me. You know. <laughs> All right, so as you like to say, you got to Memphis as fast as you could. So you graduate from high school, you come down, and you attend Memphis State. What was that journey like to move from where your biggest town was 6,000 people, and that was the big city, to come down here to be on an urban campus right in the middle of a, of a bustling, large, diverse community? It, it was wild at first, you know, and, and uh, in my dorm, I, I was fortunate to get a scholarship, an academic scholarship that, that uh, put me in uh, – Highland Towers first and then Central Towers. So there was a 1,000 people living in this dorm. And uh, my first roommate was from New York, New York City. And he and I got the local paper uh, every week, you know. And he would kid me, like, you know, uh, there's more people that live in my apartment building in New York City than your little town. I mean, he said he was, he was being – he wasn't being derogatory. He was just like – Wow, here you know if we're going to get paired up as roommates, we could not have come from two different worlds, you know. So uh, uh, that and, and going around on the campus, you know, with a map in the beginning, trying to figure out where different things were, uh, that was a bit of an adventure. And, but I, uh, from the very beginning, I, I met people who became lifelong friends, and uh, uh, it was just. Uh, 
I remember going to pep rally for the Memphis versus Memphis State versus Ole Miss, and it was uh, it was just oh this is this is cool, and uh, I did my my GPA was very high my first semester and stuff, you know, so uh, it, it was. Uh, Interesting adjustment, but I felt like I made it pretty quickly. And I really, uh, from the beginning, I really dug being in Memphis. Yeah. So what was it you experienced in college at, at Memphis State that, that launched you or made you want to go on that path to the, to the rich musical career that you have? When did that pivot go from, I'm going to college on a good scholarship, to I want to invest my life in, in the music industry? Well, you know, I, I remember the, the moment where I made the decision to do that. I was in Roland Jane's studio, Sonic Studio, and uh, I, I too, to this day, I remember uh, being essentially standing in front of a microphone with the headphones on going, you know, I think I want to give music a try. But I had like a dual education. I got a, a BA while getting a PhD in music because I already had a band, you know, when I started at then Memphis State, and we had won the Missouri Battle of the Bands and got to go to the national finals in Boston the summer before my freshman year in college. We end up we didn't win or anything, but we ended up being part of an article in Life magazine. And we had been on George Klein's talent party by then, and it's sort of and we made a, a record shortly after that, a single that really did pretty well and. And in, in the booth, it, it was like a, a top twenty hit in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, and stuff. You know, <laughs> so we were playing all over the place, and so I was booking the band. You know, being the the advanced man of sorts, and uh, and all the gigs that we played, and uh, we were working in the studio with Roland James, who had been the guitarist at Sun, and was in Jerry Lee Lewis's band and played on a lot of the big records at Sun. So we. I was getting this amazing, there was no music industry programs at that point, but I was getting this amazing education on the side uh, of my classwork during the week. And, you know, George Klein, who was Elvis's close friend, had this TV show called Talent Party. And he was like the Dick Clark of Memphis. So when you were on, you, you would go and record song with Roland and then you would lip sync that on his show but there would be video clips of the big artists of the day so you know the at five o'clock on Saturday afternoon all the teenagers across at least a hundred mile region are watching this show so you, you become you know semi-famous and uh, so there's a lot of in, in that era there were a lot of gigs to play and we would also uh with our parents as chaperones, we would rent like American Legion buildings or in different little towns in the Boot Hill of Missouri and throw our own dances and our parents would be chaperones and stuff. And so I, I was getting this, you know, amazing education on how the music industry worked. And then my senior year in college, a guy named Frank Turner, who had been the tour manager for Harvard and the Raiders when they were one of the biggest bands in America. He had a booking agency, and he hired me to be an agent with him. And because I was already booking my band, I kind of knew how things were. But he taught me. It, it was it was you know kind of an apprenticeship kind of deal because uh, there was no way you got there was no books that talked about this at that point. He just taught me how to be a booking agent and all these things in, in enormous detail. And it was we were around other people 
who were also entrepreneurs in different things. So it just, it was a period where Memphis was really happening from a music standpoint with Stax and High Records and uh, and Sun. And uh, you could, it just seemed like it was possible that I could figure out something to do in music, you know. And uh, it all worked out, so. Well, when you sent me your bio, and we've talked a little bit about our prep uh, for, for this interview, there's three big anchors I see on kind of the, the way you've been able to thrive in the music industry. So let's just go by, through them one by one. Let's start with the one closest to my father's heart. You worked with Andy Griffith and um, uh, co-produced. Um, the. Uh, uh, dear, you got to work with him as you co-produced a Grammy salute to gospel music. Tell us a little bit about your, your work with that, with Andy, with the, gospel, with the Grammy salute to gospel music, because when I grew up, Andy Griffith on TV was sacred time. Even though it was on TBS out of Atlanta, my dad just grew up loving that show, and I, in my 40s here, have really been drawn to Andy's gospel music more than anything else, um, not even his acting career. So what was that experience like? Oh, it was unbelievable because, first of all, as a little kid, I was in one, at least one scene of Face in the Crowd, if you know anything about that movie. And it, it was basically, it starts out with him in jail in Piggott, Arkansas. So I was living in Piggott, Arkansas, and my aunt was in the marching band, which was, was featured in, in, the, in the movie. So... I remember being part of this, being there for the scene where they're on the train, Andy and Lee Remick, if you remember who she was and everything, leaving from Piggott to go to Memphis because he kind of goes to Piggott to Memphis to then to New York in his career. So they, you know, they shot that scene like over and over and over and over and over. And, uh, and Lee Remick, and I've never seen anyone like Lee Remick. So anyway, and, 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 Big fan of the show. So in my recording studio in the 80s, I mean, we would take breaks to watch the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> and I'd been to uh, Branson, Missouri, to for various meetings. And uh, uh, Rodney Dillard, who was in the uh, – the Dillards were the darlings, the – like oh, the bluegrass yes, group yes. on the Andy Griffith. So Dooley trying to find a dollar. And, I uh, know that. <laughs> So, you know, you go into his studio, and he has all these pictures from the set and stuff. And the day I walked in, he's doing – they're recording a song, I Wish That Life Was Like the Andy Griffith Show. So we – you know, I was the uh, the co-producer from the beginning of Grammy Suits of Gospel Music, so we were going to be honoring Billy Ray Hearn, who was the founder of Sparrow Records, and his son, Bill Hearn. So I thought, And I knew that Andy Griffith had a Grammy-winning al- gospel album – Sparrow Records. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if Andy presented this, which was like a, a pipe dream. So we had a, a P.O. box in our database for him and a, and a phone number. So I wrote a letter, and then I, I left a voicemail on the uh, the number we had, and, and he called me back one day. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, I, I've worked around a lot of famous people, you know, but it's like Andy Griffith was like at a whole nother level, you know. <laughs> And uh, so we we, con- we connected to me. You know, uh, he said, I read your letter, and I'm going to be in L.A. at that time. And, I, you know, I think I can do it. Tell me a little more about it, you know. And so I go, well, i got to also say that I was in Facing the Crowd as a little kid. And so he, he talks. I mean, we had a very long 
conversation before we really got down to the details and stuff, you know. And then so uh, we we worked everything out, and he he called me two or three other times, just explaining, you know, I don't uh, I don't want to please don't have me sign autographs or kind of protect me from the general public and things like that, you know. And uh, it, it was just unbelievable to me to be uh, to be speaking with him, you know. And I, he would call me and. Um, you know, what should I wear? It was, it was just uh, amazing for me to be doing it. And then when he, so uh, he arrives that day, and I had a designated person to, when he, once he arrives, to whisk him up to the green room and everything so he's not having to deal with any, the, the public. And yeah, he's, he's still, you know, he's a hugely famous guy, you know. And so we go into the green room, and uh, Shirley Caesar is also an honoree, and introducing the two of them was one of the highlights of my life because uh, so anyway it was just uh, great. And then when he when he makes the presentation uh, to Billy Ray Hearn and Bill Hearn, like father and son, he he invokes this uh, Andy and Opie. It was just absolutely brilliant what he had to say, and of course he delivered it as like an amazing Broadway actor, you know. So and the and the audience was very. Very diverse, probably uh, predominantly African American, and, and everybody loved it. I mean, it's just everybody loved Andy Griffith, you know. And it, so it was. Uh, and Kirk Whalen was the musical director that day, and uh, so it was. Uh, it was a wonderful time working with Andy Griffith. Wow. I'm going to forward this to my dad because I'm going to make sure he listens to this. And next time he comes down for worship, he's going to corner you and want to want to ask you every question you can. Well, about you know, I'm Andy. happy to talk about my time with Andy Griffith. Oh, well, you are became in twenty in 1994. You became the executive director of the Memphis chapter of the Recording Academy. Uh, tell us a little bit about that position. What what kind of doors were opened up to you? What you were able to uh, help see happen, and 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 what that may give us a broader picture of. Of, of the role of the arts in the celebration of that in Memphis? Well, you know, the, the, the Grammy Award is the only music peer award. And so it's, it's uh, the Motion Picture Academy presents the Oscar, the Television Academy presents the Emmy, and the Recording Academy presents a Grammy. And those are all peer award, and that's why they're more meaningful than other awards. You know. So I had been a, a member. I, you know, I qualified as a member uh as a teenager, because you had to play on six commercially released recordings, and I, I'd done all that, and I, I became a member early, and I was on the board when uh, we started to hire full-time executive directors. At, there were seven chapters at that point, so uh, I applied for the position, not really knowing at that point what it would exactly entail, but anyway, I ended up uh, getting hired, and I'm still doing it to this day, but it was... It was uh, you know, it's been like a perfect fit for me. You know, you, you do all of these things uh, that qualify you for a position like that or lead to a position like that. And uh, and then you get to step into the role at a point where things are changing. You have to, you know, make a difference in your community and all. So it's it's been a great fit for me because the Grammy Awards makes a lot of things possible. I and mean, we all, it's about honoring excellence in music, but we use the success of that to be able to have an impact on, on the, the communities that we serve and uh, for the music education and 
help make people aware of the importance and appreciation of music, and, and you know, on a cultural level, and you know, just in the you know, in the, the time that that I've you know, from my younger days to now, I mean, we we look at contemporary music. Or pop music in a different way. It is part of the culture. It is, you know, when I, when I was young, it was like Elvis and the Beatles, that's all going to, that's a fad that's going to go away soon. It's not going to last. And But here we are all these years later, and, and we just spent eight hours watching Get Back on the Beatles and stuff, you know. So it's, but I feel like we've, we've played a role in, in not only honoring excellence, but, you know, preserving music history for the culture. And then, you know, we, our Music Heroes Foundation helps out music people in time of need. And, like, when Katrina happened, we provided aid to, like, 4,000 musicians who were, you know, basically scattered across the country. And it just, we do, people think, well, you have a job that's about 190 a year. I go, well, no, it's, it's 365 a year. The, the one night makes all these other things possible. Well, one of the things that you shared with me is, you know, one of your proudest accomplishments is, um, you know, the directing the, the, the documentaries, 50 com- uh, comprehensive filmed interviews with musical icons from the Grammy Living History Program. Give us a snapshot of a couple of stories that you were able to help tell that you think our listeners would be interested well, in. Well, I mean, first of all, we were able to get Sam Phillips on on video, you know, and and so my the the producer of all of these was a guy named Jeff Chattel, who was an Emmy winning documentary. Like he did the Marilyn Monroe A and E documentary and stuff. So we we filmed these with sets, nice little you know small sets. We had a film crew from WKNO, so they were all lit and and they were shot on Beta. Remember Beta when when that was, uh, and we had a. Uh, you know, an audio engineer, so it was all captured at a high level. But uh, you have Sam Phillips, uh, which is an amazing interview, and went for his memorial service at, um, it was, I guess, the uh, Cannon Center. So his interview was a big part of his memorial service. It was like Sam was there himself. So that was one of the, to see that be utilized in that way by his family uh, was was very touching. And I I myself did the Isaac Hayes interview uh, because no one else was available. We'd start an interview with him and the camera broke. So we had to like reschedule it. And when he was available this one day, it's like we either have to do it that day or we're on to next year. So I had the list of questions. I go, well, I'll do it. And uh, so that was a whole unbelievable experience sitting, you know, I'm off camera, but like sitting like you and me here, and I'm asking Isaac Hayes these questions. And then he would, he would say things that was just like, wow. You know, and so you become a fan and you, and then you have to figure out a way to get back into the next question and be like the responsible person you're supposed to be. But it was just, <laughs> you know, he's just sharing things that I'd never really heard before, and it, it was it was just amazing. And then um, in the 50th anniversary of Dr. King, we were 
I was the producer of a at Grammy Museum, Mississippi, in Cleveland, Mississippi, the music of the civil rights movement. So I, I, I bought this docu- this DVD that someone had done, and there's my excerpt from my interview with uh, Isaac Hayes as part of this documentary. You know, so I go, well, that's uh, is so there was there was, uh, and we did this with a lot of different people, you know, and Al Bell and David Porter and Steve Cropper, and it was just a lot of amazing stories. Uh, you know, Scotty Moore, who was the guitarist with Elvis, and uh, and, and all the, the idea for this, because I was on the, I called Carl Perkins one day, and he answered the phone. And, uh, uh, wow, and so, uh, and I was saying, uh, Mr. Perkins, you know, I first knew of your songs, from Beatle albums. And that led to a whole amazing, for me, it's like almost like spending time with Andy Griffith. I'm just hearing these stories that's just amazing. I think, well, we need to capture these stories for forevermore, you know? Absolutely. So what do you think is the state of the music industry today? Because you told a story that may not happen anymore, which is... You put together a band in rural Missouri, and you kind of worked your way up to where you won the Battle of the Bands, and it got you uh, uh, got you into Time Magazine, was able to open doors for you that, that moved you into the career that you have now. It seems as if now the approach of, of music across the board is, if you can't give me a number one hit or a top album right away right now, we don't even really have time for you. What is the pathway for someone that wants to give their life to music professionally and recording that isn't bound up in the becoming the next greatest hit? Well, I, I think it's harder than ever, but there is a path. I mean, streaming, social media and streaming is the way now. You know, the, I think from the data from last year, it's like 85% of the the revenue is streaming. But on the other hand, vinyl grew by nearly 1,000%. And even uh, cassettes are are having sort of a comeback again, and uh, people still buy CDs and everything. But largely, it's streaming. But that also gives the opportunity to uh, you can you can record something, you get it out. You know, in the days when I was coming up, you had to be on a label. There was not any other option you know you had to and the labels were like the gatekeepers and so you had to impress someone to and, and we fortunately had that with Roland James that kind of gave us the opportunity that we had but but uh you know now you can uh, record something and put it up on Spotify and Apple Music and all of that and you can promote it on social media and so there is, there is a path i think it's it's harder it's because there's so many people doing it, you know? And uh, it's like when being in a band in the teenager as a teenager in the era that I was in, there wasn't a ton of bands, you know? I mean, there were maybe a significant number, but it wasn't like anywhere near the number of people doing it now. So you you got to figure out a way to cut through the clutter, but yet every day there's new people breaking through. But the, the number of new releases that Spotify and Apple Music get on a daily basis is a, is a staggering number. But yet, but artists still manage the way to break. Th- you know, 
making videos on iPhones mm-hmm. or I think, you know, it's just using your creativity to try to make something happen and, and building, it's still the same. You're building your brand and you're trying to build an, an audience. To me, it's just harder than ever, but it is, it is still possible. My brother played on six songs with some friends from seminary and they did some punk rock Christian music. At least that's what I would call it. And it was on SoundCloud. And it was uploaded and free. And I, I mean, somebody paid for it, but I didn't have to pay to do it. And I'm still on SoundCloud and we'll listen to music every now and then just because my brother, literally with a garage band with a couple of buddies from seminary, re- uploaded this music. So I, I guess there is a flatter, um, it, it's flatter in terms of anybody can get access. But is it harder for someone to thrive as a with music as a career now? Yeah, I think that's absolutely. I mean, you uh, and and the way uh, SoundCloud is changing the way that artists get paid and stuff too. So they're really having an, an impact on on a lot of different levels. But yes, you can just because I know a lot of people who they just want their music to be heard, you mm-hmm. know, and they're not. Uh, concerned at this point whether they make money from it. they just they just want to be able to for it to be heard and so there uh, you can certainly do that now and but it is to be able to turn that into a living is harder than ever but when you look look around, you know a lot of people are doing it and uh, you know I, and I think that the careers in music the business side it's like social I don't know how long we've had uh social media i mean it's you know what 10 or 15 years or whatever it's a short period of time but there are now uh all these positions at labels and management companies where you're managing social media for the artists so that is i've had you know one of of my former staff members is now director of, of digital media for sandbox entertainment which is casey musgrave so she manages all the things you see about Casey Musgraves, she is responsible for all of that, you know. So there's, I've had other like Grammy U reps who who graduated and gone on to social media positions, and and, and those exist uh, in, in you know most any entity in music now, you know. I mean, whether it be a a museum or record label publishing or whatever, you a know, church. And yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. and and also we when we talk about that so like you know I've been involved with Visible Music College since the beginning mm-hmm. and now in church you're you have sound engineer you have lighting techs you have all this uh, the where there was a time at Lindenwood there was probably one person who might have managed thing now you have who knows how many people. And uh, in, in uh, I don't know who this quote is from, but, but like the idea you you're hearing musicians in church that you used to go to the clubs to hear, and you know on Sunday morning all across Memphis, whether it be black churches or white church, you're hearing amazing musicians, and that's part of uh, the the way they. They make a living, you know, and there are gospel artists who now totally thrive in uh, in in the business of music. You know, besides the message they're delivering, they are uh, 
you know, Jacqueline Carr, who is from West Memphis, you know, Grammy nominated again, but uh, a major gospel artist, um, launched from from West Memphis. So, and then you know, when he, um, also uh, Yeba is a, a new artist that's really broken through big this year, but she's from originally from West Memphis. She's already won a Grammy with P.J. Morton, but. Uh, her album is amazing. So there, you know, I'm I'm very aware of new people breaking through, but I also know how hard it is. Yeah. You know, one of the things that the pandemic crushed was live music venues. You know, I think about Minglewood Hall when before the pandemic, it would just be packed. You'd have lots of opportunities to go hear a wide variety of music. What is the future uh, of live music post pandemic, in your opinion? I think, well, the, you know, the first challenge is being able to have people enjoy it safely. You know, I mean, I, I think it's going to come back bigger than ever. But you know, I'm going out far, far, far less than I used to, and I'm wearing a mask and everything. You know, uh, not everyone is comfortable going to see live music, but I think. My feeling is it's going to come back bigger than ever because I, I, the first day that I came to Lindenwood and sat in wow and not watching it on my laptop, you know, hear, hearing the band and the singers and everything, I mean, it, it almost brought tears to my eyes, you know. It's just like, wow, reminds me how much I love hearing live music. And I think that uh, I've experienced, you know, with, with ukulele band, we've played just a few outdoor shows and stuff, but the first one we did at uh, the Grove at GPAC, I mean, it was sold out, and we got standing ovations and stuff. It's just because people really miss it, and uh, I think it will, will come. I mean, and it's, it's a big economic generator, or one thing, you know, and here, you know, in, in Beale Street or Lafayette's Music Room or whatever, there's beyond just the musicians and the sound engineers, you know, there's waitresses and bartenders. It's a it's a big deal. And so hopefully we can continue to get a grip on COVID so so people can enjoy live music again. Absolutely. So to Two more things to highlight as we start to wrap up. Tell us a little bit about the ukulele band. I know I, I knew all about this before I even got you know got a CD in my hand from you. I've had so many people talk to me about John Horniak and the ukulele band. How did this? Uh, what what gave birth to this? Yeah, it's a, you know I love to tell this story. So I never dreamed in, that I would be have anything to do with the ukulele because um, I in in this job I've got. To, go to Hawaii a bunch of times, but I never really thought about buying ukulele or anything. But we have a Grammy University Network, which was a college student membership. So we had a, a kickoff event at the when Visible Music College was based over uh, on Cooper, I guess, you know. So three three different singer-songwriters, three different colleges. Well, two of the three played songs on ukuleles. But they were like, it was obvious that they had written the song on ukulele, and it all like totally made sense to me why they were doing it on ukulele rather than guitar or piano. So I went home 
that night. I, so I got on YouTube. I knew there had to be something going on that I was missing. And uh, there was countless you know, young people playing cover songs on ukuleles. And then the next, my friend Larry Nager is in uh, Kauai, and he sends me a video of him buying an ukulele at Larry's Music. And he sent it because his name was Larry. You know. But anyway, I go, wow, I just got into uh, ukuleles last night. So he ends up introducing me to the owner of Larry's Music, which was Como Ukuleles. So I get a couple, one for me and for my Grammy U rep, and then I get with Larry a few months later, and he has a much nicer ukulele than mine, and I go, well, heck. So I call Sam, the owner of Kamo up, and I go, I want, I'm ready to upgrade now. And uh, so we had a conversation about the options, and then he called me back the next day and said, would you be uh, you know, like an endorsee for us? And I go, well, you know, I'm not that good of a player, but here, what if you sent me X number of ukuleles, and I give them to young, cool musicians like Luther Dickinson or, or uh, you know Patterson Hood or Drive By Truckers or whatever, and uh, just to get them used to using them on songs. So he did. He, you know, the few days later, I get this shipment from Hawaii, and, and it was uh, it was like my wife said, "This is like art." So anyway, I'm handing them out. Johnny Appleseed handing out ukuleles to people, and we are at Sun Studio one night with me and uh, Jason Freeman and Matt Ross Spang, and we were just doodling around, and one, one of us said we should start a band, and then uh, Paul Chandler, who was bringing uh, Jack Shimabukuro to GPAC, and he goes, I'm, I need an opener. I go, well, I've got an ukulele band, which really didn't really exist. But we but we end up going to play for Pat Hardaway at her church. Over, We just did three or four Christmas songs, and it was our first time to pull four people together to play together on ukulele. So uh, we did a little, like a warm-up gig with at my in-laws' outdoor party, and then we opened for Jake Shimabukuro at, at GPAC, and I thought it would just be a one-time only, and I got, you know, cool people who I'd given ukuleles to. Who, we got together the night before at Sun Studio and worked up a 30-minute set, and we played, and we're nothing like, I mean, Jake is like a virtuoso. We're just doing Roots Music songs on ukuleles, and people loved it. We got an offer to make an album, and uh, we did that, and it, we got invited to go to, the Folk Alliance Conference in Kansas City. We got invited to come to Hawaii and play and uh, America. It's just people really loved it. And then we got a chance to, uh, we decided, let's go in and make a, a Christmas album. And and we did that with uh, Hallie Phillips, Sam Phillips' granddaughter at Sam Phillips Studio, and uh, put it out on Memphis International Records. And, uh, you know, people really, you know, we've been on like, several different, TV shows like Sun Studio Sessions. And so we have like a, a following across the country. Really, you know, and it's, it's just fun for me to work with uh, really young, gifted people and doing something uh, unexpected. And uh, so, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm very blessed that at this point in my life, I still get to play music and work. In the business of music and and have some fun with it, you know. 
Well, you've referenced a couple times that you are, you know, active here at Lindenwood Christian Church, got brought in by um, Kevin and Bethany Page and their music. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up here and then how you, uh, what what has made you stay here for so almost 20 years probably. Yeah, I was driving down, you know, I live close here. I'm driving down Union Avenue and I see this little, on the, the sort of the temporary marquee, Kevin Page. It was just Kevin Page at that point and I'd worked with Kevin and I knew, so I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And someone just told me I should go check that out. So I go the next Sunday and uh, go, you know, Pat Hardaway, who I'd known previously from her editor role at um, whatever, wherever the, the place that she worked and everything, you know. And immediately I felt at home. And then when the, when Kevin started, it, it was just really cool, you know, and uh, I'd been looking for a place to go to church, but I, n- I never could quite find a place where I felt like I fit in, you know, and so I immediately like felt it, and the music was cool, you know, so I come back the next, you know, and uh, I really been coming ever since, and I saw, you know, it's Kevin and then Kevin and Beth, and you know they. They get married. They have Steve. You know, it's just like it's like seeing this family grow up and everything. And uh, it, musically, it was you know I've seen a lot of great shows and stuff. It's um, it's easy for me to be bored and tune out of music, but the music here has always been stellar and. Uh, and you know, in the early days of Wow, it was also interesting to me. Like growing up, small town Church of Christ, where everybody got dressed up, <laughs> and and you you had people coming in, like cut offs and flip flops and stuff, you know. But they were coming to church, you know. Absolutely. And uh, it, just the whole thing, the whole Wow service and that approach was very fascinating to me, and I thought it totally made sense for getting people to come. And then you know, I'm. Joined the middle, wow, and get to know Dallas and Joe Williams and other guys. But Dallas became my travel guru as I'm produced, you know, when we produced a big fundraiser for Katrina and we were having to fly in all these artists and, you know, have a little small three person staff. Then I got Dallas to manage all of that and, and it totally worked great. So he's kind of been my travel guy since then, you know, and I met. People here who did work on my house, or Alan Wells, the late great Alan Wells, worked with him. So it, it was just uh, uh, immediately, it's where I belong, and it's part of my extended family. And uh, you know, as the transition goes to went from Kevin and Beth to Dave Smith and the band, you know, I know most of the people. In the band, so it's it's uh, and you're hearing song, you're hearing Beatles songs and Prince songs in church that I never dreamed I would hear, you know. But it all uh, it all makes sense, and uh, um, I'm here every Sunday if I'm in town, you know. Yes, you are. I can attest to that <laughs> every single Sunday. Well, John, I feel like we could talk for two more hours. I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us. So I'm going to leave you with one question here. What is it that you love about Memphis? You know, kind of like, I'm just thinking about Elvis's response. Uh, 
there's a lot I like about Memphis. You know, I, I mean the the area I live in is like living you know, in Midtown. It's like living in a small town. Like, you know, where you you know your neighbors, your neighbors know your dogs' names, and when you get when you go out of town, your neighbors will look after your dogs and your house and stuff. You know, you know Memphis has amazing culture and music, and Amazing basketball. You know, I'm a Grizzlies fan and a Tigers fan, and I was at the Grizzlies game last night. I know you've been. But it, it's just, um, you know, I've had opportunities to go to other places, but this is this feels like home to me. And, uh, you know, just Memphis is a city that supports the arts. It, it's very uh, philanthropic and uh, people giving back and uh, – Trying to help the less fortunate, we see it firsthand here at Lindenwood. The, the things that uh, we're going you know, with Westies on Thanksgiving and Christmas, but that a lot of those things happen throughout the city. And uh, so, I, yeah, it's uh, all those things. This to me, it's uh, where I want to be. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for taking time for being here with us on this episode of The Heart of Memphis. And we want to thank everyone for listening. As you know, The Heart of Memphis is a conversation exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. And I'm pretty confident in this episode, we took you to the heart of the city. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon.